Hello, everyone. It's August 25th, 2020. This week, we're talking about Europa Clipper and how it might not fly on SLS. And if it does, its launch might be delayed, which isn't a big surprise, I guess. Maybe more newsworthy would be that everything's on schedule for SLS. Okay, well, let's not delay the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 273 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Okay, so right now, Ben, you're still surrounded by moving boxes because uh, I know it takes a while to unpack. I've done that myself. It takes a while, but also all of our stuff didn't get here until this week. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So this is part two of uh, the U-Haul saga, as I said. Yeah, finally got here. <laughs> it did make it. Okay. Yeah. And and it, it arrived multiple days late and the the nightmare continued, let's say. So we've been talking to corporate and we've made some some headway. They have refunded us a reasonable amount of money, but not they they have not covered the expenses incurred, let's say. <laughs> so so did they explain why it was so late? Nope. I don't I don't think they I don't think they know because I don't think that they track individual boxes deep enough that they can say this truck broke down. They know that a truck broke down. They know that a truck, you know, had uh, difficulty with the driver or, you know, they know that a truck got held up at, at customs going across the Canada border, you know, like obviously not, not me, but like, you know, mm-hmm. something, I just don't think that they can track it down to the individual. I don't know. Maybe they could if they, if they really dug in, but it's not something they make available to like their customer service reps. Well, at least you got your boxes. I mean, you yeah, know. I'm going to say I'm happy. At least it's there. Yeah. We're now sleeping upstairs. And let me tell you, sleeping upstairs in the back of the house is way better than sleeping downstairs on a mattress on the floor at the front of the house, especially when you have to have all your windows open and fans running at night, like, <laughs> like the sheer level of added safety that you, it's weird. Like, I wouldn't think that it would make that big of a deal, but like you mm-hmm. sleep better in a bedroom on a bed. So in the news, uh, Europa Clipper might not fly on the Space Launch System. And there are reasons for this. And I guess I've complained enough about how hmm. Congress does what it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Dennis, you put a nice quote in here from uh, Lori Glaze, the director of PSD, uh, the Planetary Science Director, right? Mm-hmm. So um, during a, a Planetary Science Advisory Committee meeting, uh, Ms. Glaze said um, there have been some issues that have been uncovered just recently. So, like, I, I, I kind of wrote this uh, clickbaity kind of headline, Europa Clipper isn't going to fly in SLS. That, I mean, to be fair, it's almost certainly still going to fly in SLS, but they have kept uh, their options open to fly on a commercial vehicle. Delta IV Heavy and Falcon Heavy could both do the job. They would require longer tra- transit times. You know, basically, they'd have to use gravity assists instead of SLS, which could throw... Uh, Europa Clipper straight to Jupiter and keeping those options open. It's kind of interesting. We get a little bit of, of insight here. Keeping those options open actually costs NASA an additional $30 million a year. I think they've actually like optioned some of those launches. And so they're paying, or they think that it's worth $30 million to keep their options open, which tells you a lot about you know, NASA's internal confidence in SLS being able to fly on time. Uh, and granted, um, this isn't the first flight of SLS. This is the fourth flight. SLS will have to fly Artemis 1, 2, and 3 before it um, can actually free up a vehicle to launch Europa Clipper. So it, it makes sense to keep your options open. But we're we're coming up on critical design review. So we, we got to start making some choices. The spending bill that, you know, 
NASA, NASA spending bill, which dictates that Europa Clipper is going to go, how much Europa Clipper gets to spend, also says that it has to launch on an SLS if there's one available. And it's that if that really um, is the clincher here, right? If there are no schedule slippages, the earliest SLS, SLS launch that Europa Clipper could catch a ride on is slated for 2025. Europa Clipper will finish construction and, you know, potentially integration if that's, you know, if that's how far along we are, uh, in 2024. So they're going to have to store this thing for up to 12 months. I don't know the, the exact month dates and it, the months don't really matter because things are going to slip, mm-hmm. but we're talking about a year difference in the vehicle and the launch vehicle being, being ready. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, uh, picking a commercial vehicle. Yes. We're going to add more time to transit, which, you know, is going to increase operational costs and the odds of failure, but that would save us uh, $1.5 billion or more versus an SLS launch. So that begins to make the $30 million a year to keep those options open seem a lot more reasonable, right? So why would we not launch on SLS? Like there, there's new news here, right? The, these uh, newly uncovered issues. Well, unfortunately, we don't know too much. Um, but Space News had a little bit of speculation that I think really sounds, uh, sounds like it's, it's in the right direction. SLS, the, the, the issue here might be, um, an environmental issue, a, a launch environment. Uh, SLS with a fairing, we know will result in different environments for the payload versus Orion capsule or, or, or the Orion capsule on top of an SLS and its own uh, launch shroud and everything like we, we know that that's going to result in a, in a different environment. However, it sounds like SLS's vibrational uh, like vibration environment might be higher than expected, or maybe it's higher with a fairing and lower with an Orion on board. It, it's hard to tell. Somebody in the in the notes here speculated that an Orion capsule is hardier than Europa Clipper. And I think that's a pretty good <laughs> observation. And the, the fix here is going to be on Europa Clipper's side. They specifically said that special hardware adjustments uh, would be may be required to fly an SLS. Like I mentioned, uh, critical design review is coming up. It's scheduled for December. And so what they're doing right now is working really hard on launch vehicle analysis. They want to be able to know for sure whether they're going to have to tweak uh, their spacecraft in order to be able to fly it on SLS. I don't know if this potentially bodes ill for SLS as a whole when flying um, non-Orion payloads, you know, in its, in its cargo configuration. But I mean, who knows? But, you know, we love our Europa Clipper. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited to see Europa Clipper fly. I, I mean, how how can you not? And uh, it, it would be really cool for Europa Clipper to be the first really heavy punch of science to fly on SLS. So to some extent, you know, Europa Clipper is the solution uh, or is the, is the problem that the solution of SLS was looking for. Like, I, I think very early on, it was identified as as a good payload. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it'd be cool to see that work out in the end. But yeah. 
you know, who, who knows what we're actually going to see. So I guess it doesn't make too much of a difference if they have to launch a year later. I mean, there's like cost that they incur, but as far as the Delta V needed to get it there, is it just because we're going so far out in the solar system that you know, it doesn't really make much of an appreciable difference because after yeah, all- Not, not the yeah. orbital dynamic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jupiter isn't going to be moving too far anyway, so right. I guess it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be relatively in the same spot by the time we go around the sun another year. Now, once we start talking about, you know, gravity assists, they're going to be more and less optimal paths to take, mm -hmm. right? Different trajectories that, that we can use. So I don't know what, I mean, obviously they've looked at options for multiple launch windows. I don't know when those open up for commercial vehicles and I don't know what they look like. There, there are probably so many that it's not even worth really talking about it at this point. Yeah. Because there are going to be schedule slips both for SLS and Europa Clipper. Hopefully for mm -hmm. Europa Clipper, they won't, the buffer built into the schedule is going to be enough, hopefully. Um, and when they're saying we want to launch or we're going to be ready to launch in 2024, hopefully that's going to be the case. But, you know, we're going to eat up some of that reserve. We always do. And, and don't get me started on schedule slips for SLS. Okay, we got three short and sweets as per usual. And what is the first one, Dennis? First up, Ball Aerospace successfully completes green-fueled SmallSat mission. Launched June of last year aboard a Falcon Heavy, the Green Propellant Infusion Mission, or GPIM, has successfully completed 95% of its on-orbit maneuvers and demonstrations. Designed to test the practical application of a non-toxic or green propellant, in this case a hydroxyl ammonium nitrate fuel and oxidizer monocrop called Ascent, the SmallSat verified the propulsion system with a series of orbital maneuvers over the past year. GPIM will soon begin a series of burns to deorbit and burn up in the atmosphere, completing the mission. That's so cool. I remember when we reported about the launch, it was a nice little blast from the past. Yeah, <laughs> I know that we had talked about some kind of green propellant because it's like, I just think it's really interesting because if this can replace hydrazine, that's just all the better. I really see hydrazine as just being super, what's the word? It's just such a nuisance. <laughs> right. A that's nuisance. A word for it. <laughs> a, you know, a murderous substance that will kill, but I mean, like, it's, <laughs> exactly. it's, like, it's like death gas. Death gas. Anyway, all right, up next, uh, Blue Origin delivers its Lunar Lander mock-up. Blue Origin has transported a low-fidelity mock-up of its Lunar Lander to Johnson Space Center. The full-size mock-up will be tested by engineers and astronauts. It includes both descent elements built by Blue Origin and the ascent element built by Lockheed Martin. The lander will be tested for ergonomics, control panel layout, and vehicle ingress and egress with fully suited astronauts. As the vehicle is still in its early stages of development, it will be easier to make any changes should they be necessary. And finally, SpaceX sets a reuse record. SpaceX has now launched the same Falcon 9 first stage six times, setting a new record for itself. Well, and in the world, I suppose. Uh, this record-setting booster first launched in late 2018 and has now been recovered safely after a drone ship landing in the Atlantic. Elon Musk has claimed that a Falcon 9 first stage can be reused at least 10 times and that with refurbishment might be capable of 100 reuses. Also on the same mission, the recovery ship Miss Tree caught a payload fairing half as well. Nice. <laughs> Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we got a really cool correction from Brian Koska. Yeah, we're finally using this segment as it was intended originally. <laughs> yeah, I like that. A, a correction burn and nothing else. No, 
<laughs> no mm-hmm. fun links for me. No uh, bogus news segments for me. <laughs> well, we had right. some corrections last week as well. So yeah, but but then I, I fouled up the correction burns by adding additional yeah. additional things. In. So anyway, anyway, Brian Costa wrote in via email. Thank you, Brian. And I'll just quote him directly here. You mentioned that they obviously don't fly lower body negative pressure. Uh, devices like iron lungs because that would be heavy and bulky. Well, they actually built it into Skylab. It was one of those rare circumstances where a human spacecraft had extra mass margin to quote unquote spend on equipment. And I had no clue that this was the case. And, and I, I love Skylab. So I'm assuming at some point I read this, but it totally, I was shocked when I read Brian's email. So mm. in the show notes, I'll actually have a, a photo of basically like half an iron lung. An, uh, an LBMP uh, on Skylab with um, Garriott. What's his name? O- Owen Garriott uh, shoved inside with lots of uh, instrumentation hmm. uh, strapped, taped, and glued to his upper body. And just to remind listeners, uh, that stands for lower body negative pressure because mm-hmm. we were talking about the spacesuit, not space, but the partial pressure suit to keep blood uh, down towards the lower body. Yeah, vacuum mm-hmm. pants that suck. Yeah, these pants suck as intended. Yeah. Okay, so this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have one of those rare episodes where we have no winners. So I guess that means that Ben won, and the clue was a flame retardant spacecraft, which, as I recall, I think was that me that came up with it. No, no, that was you that came up with that clue. So yeah, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you set the stage though, bringing up the uh, particular cartoon. <laughs> I guess we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, no, no spoilers. It's a, uh, it's an Archer reference. So of course, the Archer reference started. Uh, um, with David, and, and then I just made it more complicated, I guess. All right. So uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 25th of August, 2003. It was the launch of the Spitzer Space Telescope. So cool. I fell into a really deep rabbit hole because Caltech has got a really excellent website up with like basically the user manuals for Spitzer. So, you know, we brought Dennis on to be able to talk about science. But for me, the science is boring. I want to know about the engineering. I want to know (laughs) what these instruments actually look like, not what we can do with them. And so um, the Caltech website has got diagrams and descriptions and explanations of all of the instruments. And there's some really beautiful photos and um, some very long words uh, so be sure to check that out. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best here, but I, I could basically sit and read verbatim this website, uh, for hours and, and I'd be happy. Uh, so a little history first. CERTIF, the Space Infrared Telescope Facility, uh, is this concept that's been around for a while. Uh, Dennis, did you mention this about the shuttle? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I know you made the call out to shuttle later, but I think even before it was the space. Erdif, it was the shuttle Erdif, so the S was originally yeah, shuttle. Yeah, so so we can talk about it. But yeah, alternatively, the S is a shuttle. So um, astronomers um, have been interested in, in infrared telescopy f- forever, but they started looking at putting an infrared telescope in space in the 1970s. That's when we really started talking about it. And uh, notably, the National Academy of Sciences published a paper called um, a strategy for space astronomy and astrophysics in the 1980s. 
And that article was published in 1979. So, you know, getting ready for the 1980s. I just realized how confusing it is to have two years next to each other right. <laughs> in a sentence. But they suggested Sirtif to fly on uh, Space Lab, not Skylab, uh, but Space Lab, the uh, platform that flies in the back of a shuttle. So before they got to Sirtif on a Space Lab, they actually flew uh, the infrared astronomical satellite. Um, in 1983. Um, and I believe that that was an international cooperation. Um, the IAS infrared astronomical satellite is still in orbit um, because we didn't deorbit things back then. And it is now considered a collision hazard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the thing only operated for like, uh, I think like 10 months. It, it, you know, really short lifespan. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Ben, just a quick thing. It's it, IRAS is what it's typically called. Oh, I-R-A-S. Yeah. I see. You always want to, yeah, you always stick that IR together whenever they make their okay. near cam, okay. near spec, all that. <laughs> more, more letters, the better. Thank you. <laughs> sure. um, all right. And then, uh, so that was in 1983 that IRAS flew. And then in 1985, uh, the Space Lab Infrared Telescope flew on the Space Lab 2 mission. And uh, as Dennis alluded to earlier, the shuttle's a bad place to do IR telescopy. Um, there is too much heat. There is too much dirt. I mean, they, they call the vacuum around shuttle a dirty vacuum because, you know, shuttle just sheds all of this terrestrial junk. And so, you know, it's not, not a great place. They, they initially wanted to fly the Space Lab infrared telescope, which I guess would be SIRT, CERT. Did they, did they turn it into CERTIF, I guess? I, I, I'd never even heard of that one, to be honest, before the okay. show. So <laughs> okay. I don't know right. if it had a name. <laughs> well, in any event, um, the Space Lab uh, infrared telescope was planned to fly multiple times. And they, they're like, this is so cool. We could just fly it over and over and we can bring it back to the ground and we can put new instruments on it and do all this great stuff. Um, just load that sucker up with helium. Uh, but uh, it, it turned out to not be a great uh, place to put this mission. Oh, and, and I said the, the H word helium. So that's where the clue comes from. Uh, a flame retardant spacecraft is a reference to the shuttle or the, uh, the, the Archer episode about, they didn't want to call it a blimp, right? They called it a lighter than air, a rigid airship, a rigid, a rigid airship. airship. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the rigid airship was not filled with uh flammable and explosive helium. It was filled with, uh, nice, safe helium. <laughs> In fact, it's flame retardant. So, all right. We, we went one layer too deep there, I guess. Um, but you need helium to be able to do infrared telescopy because, you know, infrared radiation is given off by anything that's above, uh, absolute zero. And so to get really good imagery, um, you need to be as cold as possible. Wanted to mention that before we got any farther and I forgot. Okay. So, uh, CERTIF, um, the Space Infrared Telescope Facility, which would later be renamed Spitzer, was originally planned to launch on Shuttle Centaur. So that's a shuttle with a Centaur in its cargo bay and then the payload on top of Centaur. Unfortunately, Centaur, well, fortunately, let's say, I guess, uh, Centaur was banned after, uh, the Challenger mission. They, they decided we're not going to fly Shuttle Centaur. It's too dangerous. And, and, you know, there are a number of reasons. None of them directly relate to Challenger. It's mostly Challenger caused us to do a, a, a reevaluation of how dangerous uh, Shuttle was. But Shuttle Centaur poses a lot of different issues. First off, if it fails in the Shuttle's 
payload bay, you're done. There, there's no recovering from that. If it, if it explodes, it explodes. And of course, since it's, uh, he, uh, helium oxygen, hydrolox, hydrogen and oxygen, <laughs> it, it's more likely to fail in an explosive way than a solid rocket engine is, for example. Not only that, it was too heavy to fly safely. If you ever flew shuttle, shuttle Centaur, you could only fit four people on board. And there was a joke that they would have to swap underwear instead of bringing enough for everybody because that's how mass limited, uh, that vehicle would be. Mm. A- another issue is that it was really going to be hard to re-enter the atmosphere safely if for some reason you had to abort uh, payload deployment or you tried to do payload deployment and the deployment failed. Basically, you would want to be able to vent uh, all the propellants from Centaur. Um, but inside the shuttle's bay, there was a question whether that could be done safely or completely, you know, so that you didn't wind up with residual left in the bay. There were a lot of issues. Um, detanking after an abort, a launch abort, like there are all these different things. Just it's not good. So, you know, after, uh, after Centaur was decided to be a no-go, they developed a lot of, uh, fantastic upper stages, um, PAM, uh, which uses a star. There was actually a two-stage PAM. There was the, um, inertial, inertial upper stage, right? Inertial upper stage versus interim upper stage, which is the modern IUS. Anyway, but they, they might have been able to fly, uh, Spitzer. Um, on one of those upper stages, but Spitzer also suffered some, um, budget restrictions, let's say. And so they ended up, um, drastically redesigning the spacecraft, uh, multiple rounds of redesigns. And what they came out with was a smaller and cheaper version. And incredibly, a smaller, cheaper version of, of Spitzer that was more effective. Um, it, it's, it's really, really fantastic. Um, and by more effective, I mostly mean that they came up with the idea of putting it, uh, out in a heliocentric orbit. Instead of having it orbit Earth, they realized if they put it in an Earth trailing orbit, they would have, uh, the ability to do passive cooling, um, which means that they could bring less helium along with them. And they could also have a longer lifespan, even with, uh, a smaller quantity of helium. So basically what they did was they put a heat shield on Spitzer, um, isolated the bus from the instruments, and they also painted the back of the spacecraft, the back that faces away from the sun, they painted it black so that it could radiate out heat uh, passively and, and stay cooler. And then, uh, Dennis, you, you also pointed out that if you're farther away from Earth and the moon, it's easier to not have them in your images so you get a bigger sky. Because yep. you know, scheduling is a pain in the ass. Like, right. <laughs> Already it's a pain in the ass. Let's, <laughs> let's get away from Earth. Right. So anyway, all of these redesigns obviously led them to a better spacecraft, but it also allowed them to launch uh, on a Delta II. And I, I guess allowed them to launch. It was cheaper to launch on a Delta II. Um, and they, uh, they launched out of Cape Canaveral, as you might expect, on a Delta II in the 7920H configuration. So the, the 7 means the 7000 series, the 9, 7920, 79, 9 is 9 solid boosters. <laughs> Jeez. Right? Uh, the third digit is always going to be a two for a, for a Delta II. It's the, um, a second stage with a AJ10 engine and, Prior to the 6000 series, they used a different engine, but we'll forget that. Um, and then the last digit is the stage. Um, and so, um, two zero, zero means no third stage. And then the H, 
um, means that they used um, the Gem 36 um, boosters, right? The, you got nine of them, and we're going to get the big ones off the shelf. <laughs> pretty nice. So they, they were able to launch on a Delta II, and it went on to do some pretty fantastic science. The primary mission uh, ran from the 18th of December 2003, and then the, the extended mission started on May 2009, um, and then it was only um, just decommissioned this year. So let's talk about the primary mission. Um, Spitzer was intended to do, I guess you could break it down into four main things. They wanted to study the early universe. So looking at star formation and the formation of heavy elements like planets and people. They wanted to search for brown dwarfs and super planets and then be able to study them. Um, they wanted to be able to study uh, ultra luminous galaxies and active galactic nuclei. I know what an active galactic nucleus is, but Dennis, what's an ultra-luminous galaxy? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they have what we call luminous infrared galaxies, or LURGs. And um, and then uh, if it's above a certain threshold, which is totally arbitrary, uh, the amount of infrared radiation you get from them, they call them ULURGs, or ultra-luminous infrared galaxies. And then there's high LURGs as well, I think, that are even beyond that. And so um, it really is just a star forming galaxy that's emitting mm -hmm. a lot of infrared light because uh, there's enough dust in the galaxy um, to take the UV light coming from the actual young stars that are forming and then reprocess it into UV wavelengths. Interesting. Um, I did know that. <laughs> pretty good. Cool. Pretty good. Um, and then the, the fourth main uh, target, science target, was to discover and study protoplanetary and planetary debris disks, so like accretion disks. So, you know, Spitzer is all about birth, I guess, birth of the universe uh, and, and birth of planets. So like we said, uh, like, like I said, they used liquid helium to cool the vehicle down. And during its primary mission, they got the instruments down to five Kelvin, so five degrees <laughs> above <laughs> absolute zero absolutely frigid that's uh negative 268 degrees celsius and there were three uh three science instruments uh irac irs and mips so let's talk about irac first it's the infrared array camera and there's the ir dennis <laughs> it's not <laughs> iac it's irac and irac it's all these instruments are really cool they all have their own strengths and weaknesses irac was the the giant eye. Uh, it did simultaneous observation in four different wavelengths. Two of them were in the same field, and two of them were in a different, but uh, a different field, but they were paired together. So they're paired in clusters. So one field is 3.6 and 5.8 micrometers. Um, the other field is 4.5 and 8 micrometers. And so they have uh, a beam splitter. So they have two different apertures, and each one has a beam splitter that splits the image into these two different um, these two different instruments. And like I said, this this was the the big eye. It had a huge field of view, uh, 5.2 square arc minutes. Now, granted, 5.2 arc minutes is really tiny. That's what like like half of your thumbnail at arm's length, maybe your whole thumbnail at arm's length. I think it'd be even smaller than that. I mean, an arc minute is about like, if you think about how big a star looks on the sky, like it's angular size, that's about an arc minute roughly. That's about, oh, okay. Okay. So like, yeah, like, so, like not exactly, but order of magnitude. Yeah. 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 So, so maybe, yeah, maybe half of your thumbnail, if you got maybe, maybe half of your pinky nail, let's say, depending on the size of your hands, <laughs> relatively gigantic, but in other contexts, yeah, very small. 
Um, and so there were four sensors, the two smaller ones. Remember, they, they paired them small, large, small, large um, into two different apertures. The small instruments uses indium antimonide uh, detectors. I, I got into, I, I was going to look up each of these technologies so I could at least be somewhat familiar with them. And I, I got sucked down a rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but uh, indium antimonide uh, or in, antimonide, maybe it's probably antimonide. Oh, no, I've heard antimonide. Antimonide. I mean, whether or not it's yeah. correct, uh, but I definitely heard that. It feels but... better. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, indium antimonide for the short wavelength detectors and arsenic dope silicon for the long wavelength detectors. Then there was the infrared spectrograph, the IRS. And uh, IRS is the flexible of the three. Like if we're talking in boy band terms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, IRS was super flexible. It had four four different instruments, four different modules that could do a wide range of spectra. The, their spectrums were, were fairly wide, and they had a, a wide range of resolutions that they could pick. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, IRS has got um, slit-shaped apertures instead of a square aperture. And the four instruments were called short-low, short-high, long-low, and long-high. Um, but what's really cool is that each of those four had two bandpass filters, one at each end of their aperture, because it's, it's shaped like a slit, right? So you could not only pick which instrument you wanted, but you could also um, pick which uh, filter you wanted um, by putting the source, uh, the object that you're looking at, on one end or the other end of this slit. And then what's really cool is they could even put the source in the middle of the slit and get a little bit of data from each of the filters, which would help them normalize their data, sort of um, like a an in-use calibration, I guess. And then what's really cool about IRS is uh, the short-low instrument also, or the short-low module also had uh, what's called a peak-up module, P-E-A-K, not P-I-C-K, a peak-up module that was sort of a, a larger field of view as one square arc minute versus the four by 50 arc second ish because each of these instruments had a different uh, a different size but we're talking about four by 50 ish arc seconds for the the main instruments one uh, arc minute for the pickup module and what was really cool is it, it could uh, you could point the thing quote unquote roughly at a star and then the pickup uh, module could actually dial in and tweak the direction that, that you are pointing the, the instruments to get this uh, point source exactly where you want it. So the detectors on IRS were half the size of the detectors on IRAC. They used arsenic dope silicon for the low bandwidth um, detectors and antimony dope silicon for the high bandwidth detectors. And I kind of regret calling IRS the flexible, uh, the flexible instrument because MIPS, the multiband imaging photometer for Spitzer, was even more flexible and it, <laughs> It, it was so powerful. So MIPS had uh, three bands and three resolutions, roughly. We're gonna we're gonna talk about this, but roughly these were its its three main modes: twenty four, seventy, and one hundred and sixty uh, micrometers. All three of them collected data simultaneously in non-overlapping fields. So you could look at three different things. The short wavelength detector, the, the 24, was identical to IRS's uh, short wavelength detec- detectors. Um, it was arsenic doped silicon. And then the, um, the other two detectors were gallium doped germanium. 
And what's really cool is the 160 micrometer uh, sensor not only used gallium dope germanium, but they actually added uh, mechanical stress to each of the pixels, um, which lowered the band gap. And I don't really want to talk too much about how these um, impurity sensors work. Um, but basically, it's like squeezing the lens to, to change or squeezing the detector to change the color that it can see. So these were the three main modes, but they actually had selectable additional modes that you could kind of like jimmy into the thing. <laughs> it's really cool. So they had a low resolution wideband mode that could see just a huge portion of the spectrum. They had a low field of view, but high resolution mode they could do. And to give you an idea, the wide field of view was five arc minutes. And they actually had a, a smaller, like an arc second field of view that they could go into um, by uh, flipping the instruments around. But unfortunately, or flipping the, de the detectors around, I believe, is, is what, what happened physically. But unfortunately, the smaller field of view was intended for both the 23 or the 24 micrometer and the seven micro 70 micrometer in, uh, detectors. But there was actually a cabling issue that made the uh, wide field of view. Um, how did they? How did they call it? I think unreliable <laughs> for, the, mm. for the seventy micrometer. So not only can you you know use these super wide range uh, detectors, but the whole thing was basically powered by a scan mirror. Um, so it would um, it, it would split the beam into each of the three different uh, sensors, but you could point it just off off target, I guess, and be able to pick up some of these additional modes by bouncing the light around in different ways. Uh, but it also was able to do fine pointing. So you'd get close to your target and then um, the mirror could track across to account for vibrations in the vehicle or, you know, slow drift um, to get really good long, longer exposure images. But then what's also really cool is that you could use the mirror to um, they call it chopping to, to actually chop away from your target so that you could see um, dark sky next to your target. Um, and I believe that's kind of the same thing, nor normalizing data. Does that sound reasonable, Dennis? Yeah, you're taking me back. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, you, do you have more that you could say on that? Not really. I think it's just, you know, I mean, yeah, so you, you want to have a good, um, you, you want to calibrate to, you know, if you had... You know, shutters closed, we're looking at nothing, you're still going to end up getting voltage on your pixels. You know what I mean? And so you really want to know what does an empty piece of sky look like? What kind of reading am I going to get from that? So that way, when you do have a source on there, that source that you're getting isn't just, you know, the galaxy or planet or whatever, it's also the sky. And you want to subtract that sky out if you want, you know. To get a more accurate understanding. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Good. I, I'm glad. I, I'm glad I interpreted that right. And yep. the, yeah, they they call it to. They say they chop back and forth between the source and the sky. It's nice to be able to get calibration data at the same moment as you're collecting science data, right? Instead mm -hmm. of calibrating and then a half hour later collecting your data, to be able to do that right there, it's really cool. So all good things must come to an end. They ran out of helium um, in uh, 2009, and so then they moved to the war mission. So remember the the primary mission they operated at five Kelvin, the warm mission, oh, it, an absolute balmy thirty Kelvin is what the vehicle uh, stabilized at. It says negative two hundred and forty three degrees Celsius, thirty Kelvin, it, absolutely boiling. When they were operating at that higher temperature, um, they were limited to the IRAC instrument and only the two uh, lower wavelength 
uh, sensors, the 3.6 and 4.5 micrometers. And the the WARM mission, they were able to do a decent amount of science. Dennis, can you uh, elaborate on the differences between the primary mission and the and the WARM mission differences? Because it's, it's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, just, you know, as you're kind of going over, you know, all the instruments and everything, like at the end of the day, Spitzer, all of the data was good. Uh, the 3.6 and 4.5 micron channels were used so many times when you would want to, you know, extend, you know, your spectrum of whatever object you were looking at to the infrared. But um, what made Warm Spitzer not like as powerful, I guess, as uh, uh, as uh, the original Spitzer is that when it came to this, you know, mid infrared, like the 2470 and 160 microns, which is all the way in the far infrared at that point, the MIPS data, if you didn't have that from Spitzer, I feel like you didn't really get it from anything. You know what I mean? Unless you had some like very specific, maybe telescope you put on a balloon once or something. You know what I mean? Like anytime, you know, like MIPS data was valuable. I just remember that always being a sense that if you had 24 micron, then okay, now we've got a, you know, we're looking at that window that normally like, you know, we can now learn things about whatever, you know, science target we're interested in that we otherwise would have been lost to us. Because you can't do that from the ground no matter what. You can't do that from actually I don't know if you could do uh that from a, an airplane. But at that point, um You're not you're not doing hundred and sixty from an airplane, right? That, no, that, no. I can't imagine yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So um yes, yeah, so, I mean that was the thing. And but I, I just love that they still, you know, had uh warm spitzer, you know, doing its thing because again that Iraq data was super valuable as well. And so still getting, you know, you can do from the ground, you know, 3.6 and 5.4 or 4.5 micron imaging, but the uh, the problem there is it's just not going to be at the quality that Spitzer was, you know, even if you have a bigger telescope, you still got the atmosphere to deal with. And that's just going to make it just intrinsically not as not as good. And so, yeah, I mean, that's so, kinda... yeah, it's, it's interesting that that Spitzer went from this super unique data source to, oh, you know, just merely the the best data source that we have for, you know, the lower wavelengths, you know, whatever. Ho -hum. Mm -hmm. That's how cool Spitzer is. Yeah. And, and I want to keep in mind, too, that this is, you know, like like you said, Warm Spitzer came on, you know, that became the mode of observing in 2009. And a lot of what I'm saying is dated now. Like you can do I mean, there are things you can do from the ground now in the infrared mm. with adaptive optics that kind of blows Spitzer out of the water. But mm. that's okay. for a single target at a time, and it's a very involved process and with absolutely giant mirrors. But at least, you know, as of five, ten years ago, that was kind of kind of where we were. <laughs> mm -hmm. Spitzer also um, did um, exoplanet hunting for a little bit. Um, they actually used the peak-up camera uh, to, to do some of that imaging, which is pretty cool. All right. So as the warm mission came to a close, um, and, and it did come to a close, uh, the 30th of January this year, 2020, one of the major issues that they were, uh, fighting against is something that like makes total sense, but you might not think about to begin with. Basically the angle, the relative angle to earth was changing the whole time, right? As they were trailing behind earth. And so the vehicle was constructed to be able to point at Earth when it was relatively close for the primary mission. As that angle changed more and more and more, the tilt of the vehicle, I, I specifically saw pitch, but I'm going to guess pitch is probably a bad way to describe this. But basically to be able to point the, uh, the fixed comms array, right, because it, it doesn't articulate, to be able to point the comms array back at Earth as the angle to Earth 
uh, got greater and greater and greater, the solar panels were having to point more and more and more edge on to the sun. Mm. And so by the end, um, they only had two and a half hours of battery life when they were in their communication orientation. And that really cuts down on your ability to do science. Um, if you're not only um, having a smaller and smaller amount of time that you can transmit home, but if you're having to be take more and more risk that you're actually going to never get out of that communication orientation, you know, thing it, it gets harder and harder and harder. But anyway, this spacecraft, like I said, only ended its mission this year. Hmm. Such such a great vehicle. 2003 wow. to 2010. Or 2003 to, to 2020, not 2010. Very, very cool. Um, and Dennis, I, I think you originally put Spitzer on the This Week in Spaceflight History document, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you for, for bringing this one to our attention. This was a fun uh, learning experience. Sure, yeah, you. that was a comprehensive rundown of Spitzer yeah. and, and I mean, I, I learned a lot from yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> I I, I'm telling you, check out the Caltech website. It it's so good. It's <laughs> it's really nice. All right. That's this week in spaceflight history. All right. Well, what is next week in spaceflight history? So next week we're gonna go back to nineteen seventy seven. The clue is top heavy but retired. Okay. Top heavy but retired. That sounds like a hard clue as well. I don't know, but that's not surprising. So yeah, that's next week in 1977. Uh, if anyone out there thinks they know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Then we just got three launches. So that works out. What's the first one, Dennis? Well, first one on August 26th, we've got a Delta IV Heavy that'll be taking uh, Enrol 44, a you know National Reconnaissance Office um, you know, classified spy satellite. Uh, and so this uh, one, keep an eye out again on August 26th at 0616 UTC or 216 AM Eastern Daylight if you are in the States. And it'll be uh, launching uh, at Slick out of Slick uh, 37B at Cape Canaveral. And then the next day on August 27th is a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's launching SALCOM 1B. So that is, uh, you know, another SALCOM spacecraft for the SALCOM constellation. And uh, this one is uh, tasked with hydrology and land observation, and it will be operated jointly with uh, the Italian Cosmo SkyMed constellation. Not familiar with that one. And that will be operating in the X-band to provide frequent information relevant for emergency management. Okay, so that's what that satellite will be for. So that's launching on the 20th. 27th at uh, 2324 UTC. Looks to be an instantaneous launch window there. And that's launching from Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral. And then finally, we've got a Vega uh, flying SSMS POC. So that's the Small Spacecraft Mission Service Proof of Concept. Pretty cool. I love uh, spacecraft servicing spacecraft. Yeah, <laughs> they're cool. cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, On board will also be about 50 microsatellites. Those small sats cited here as microsats, nanosats, and cubesats. Um, and there's some commercial satellites in there. There's some institutional, uh, like educational, uh, spacecraft. The actual small sat dispenser is funded by ESA, uh, which is, uh, pretty nice. So this launch has been delayed, delayed, and delayed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, it's been delayed some more. And so we'll, we'll see if it actually flies this time. Hopefully it will. Um, but it is currently scheduled to fly on August 31st or September 1st, depending on your time zone. It will fly September 1st at 0151 hours UTC. 
um, which works out to be the 31st at 9.51 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, this vehicle is flying out of French Guiana because it's a Vega. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. Let us now do with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. I have to give a shout-out today. I get to give a shout-out today to our new <laughs> flight director level supporter Carlos Barr uh, who is currently joining us in the chat thank you Carlos for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links or orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com alright so that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then Later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.